Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think people always underestimate how much work it is to launch an Airbnb. Like it's a lot of work from putting the furniture list together, getting all those Amazon boxes to show up to your house, getting somebody to put them in, to assembling and doing the decor, photography, creating the listing. Airbnbs are not passive. There's a lot of turnover, a lot of operations, but just like any business, right? If you're smart and if you know how to build a team and if you know how to build a system, it could be like an 80 to 90% passive business. Personally, I could delete the app off my phone, never check it, and it would be fine only because I have a badass manager that handles everything. And I rather make 80% of the profit while doing 5% of the work than make 80% of the profit, but do 80% of the work. So again, it's not passive, but if you build a team in a system, it could be a mostly passive income business. I would say the biggest misconception is that you have to buy real estate. When you talk about building a short-term rental business, people's objection is always, well, I don't have 20% down to buy a property and pay all the furniture. I would say 95% of our students also start with the arbitrage model and the subleasing model and the three most important steps because one of the challenges is regulation so you have to call the local building department and make sure you can actually get a permit only launch where you can get a permit number two is use Mashvisor and AirDNA in order to check the comps to check if you can make double or more whatever you're going to pay in rent and then the third one is to get permission in writing hey Jorge Contreras has permission to use this property as a short-term rental you're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. 
Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Jorge, welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you here. I am so excited to talk to you about your expertise in the short-term rental Airbnb space, and we're going to dive into all of that. But first, let's start off with you introducing yourself to the audience. Hey, everyone. My name is uh, Jorge Contreras. I reside in uh, Orange County, California. I've been a real estate investor now for 11 years, six years in the Airbnb space. I have a multiple seven-figure short-term rental business, and I'm just excited to be here on the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast. <laughs> We're excited to have you here. And so I am like a baby, brand new Airbnb host, if you will. I just bought my first property in Puerto Rico. And so I'm definitely looking to leverage people like you and your expertise to make sure that I'm doing things right. Because for the folks who've been part of my inner circle for a while, they know I've had like a love-hate relationship with the rental real estate in general. And so this is like round two for me. I'm just trying to do things from a way more informed space. And so I want to get to know you and your story. Were you always planning on being a real estate investor or did this happen like by accident? It definitely was not something that I was always planning. The way I was introduced to this world is I used to work. My very last job was in 2008. I was a personal banker at Bank of America. I was setting up checking accounts, business, personal. And at the time, I was also setting up the loan. So if people wanted to purchase or do a refinance or a home equity line of credit, I was your guy. I'm 20 years young. I felt like I had my podcast, Janice, without really knowing what a podcast was back then. Because in my cubicle, I would sit across from all these super successful Latino entrepreneurs because it was like a Spanish speaking community only. And I just got to learn so much. And I would meet these real estate investors that had, you know, a lot of success. And at the time, to me, real estate investing was like from another universe. I thought it was very complicated. I thought you needed a lot of money. Like it, like I never thought that I would ever be in the place that I'm in today. Fast forward, because of what I learned there, I learned about the basic programs like FHA. And I bought my first property in 2012. But I didn't know how to go and buy my second, my third, and beyond because that, that required more knowledge, more experience. So what I did is I, I invested into mentorship and I became a student at the Rich Dad Company in 2015, 
within two years, two and a half years, my net worth exceeded a million dollars. I now own about $7 million worth of real estate. I own nine properties. I have two developments that I'm working on. And then I got all my subleases and my co-hosting. We have a total of uh, 18 short-term rentals. But um, so that's a little bit of where I'm at now. But yeah, I never, this was never part of my plan. It was just like little sequences, uh, uh, life events that happened over time that led me to this path. That's incredible. And the first thing that I have to think about is your childhood, your money story. Like, what were you taught about money? Because I feel like for somebody to have those skills to start building wealth, did you get any information when you were growing up about how to do that? Or was this something that you were self-taught? That's a great question. I definitely was not self-taught. I knew about entrepreneurship at a young age because my parents were entrepreneurs. The challenge is that my dad was in and out of jail. And so I knew that what he was doing was not legal. <laughs> and so by the time I was seven years young, I was selling drugs with my dad. That was one of the businesses that we had. And then the other business is when I was 10 years young, I was bringing people from Tijuana, from Mexico into the U.S. And that led my parents also going like in and out of jail. And so I learned about entrepreneurship, but not from the best role models, I can say in, in that aspect. In fact, because of those experiences, I had a lot of scarcity around money. I even had nightmares when I was like 10 and 12, where I would wake up in the middle of the night and I like not joking or exaggerating. I would visualize, I would see money flying in the air, but it was like this. And I would see like a witch. So it was like a witch on a broom, money, this sounds like scary sounds. And so I had these uh, negative beliefs about money because of how money was made in my family. So it was made illegally and in and out of jail. And of course, it created a lot of disruption mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in every aspect for my family, created a lot of chaos. And so, yeah, just it just was not a good experience. So for me, I went through a lot of uh, personal development, a lot of therapy, like over the last 10 years that helped me reframe those experiences and change the narrative around those stories so that I could get rid of those limiting beliefs. Because I used to think of money as like something that was bad and negative because of how it was made growing up. That's so real. And I'm so glad that you share that because, you know, especially when you're a first generation wealth builder, like, I think one of the most common things that I hear from people is this feeling of unworthiness of even having these thoughts of feeling like that you're deserving of more of abundance and all that stuff. And, you know, for a lot of us, we do come from these backgrounds where money was scarce. It was hard to make. And if you had it, it disappeared. And there's a lot of trauma that needs to be addressed if you're going to not only like build wealth, but also retain it. Right. So I'm glad that you mentioned that, you know, you've been doing that work. Yeah, before you go into the next part, you brought it up and I want to uh, tap into that a little bit. You mentioned about the money disappearing, right? My dad made money really fast, like really, really fast, but it was gone, like easy in, easy out. And so when he passed away, when I was 12, we didn't have money to buy flights to go to his funeral. That's how bad it was. Again, I just had to rewire and reframe everything about money. Yeah, that's real. Okay. So talk me through your first real estate endeavor. So you mentioned you use the FHA program. How did you go about, you know, getting the money together for a down payment, all that stuff? How did you navigate that? Well, my very first business right after quitting my job at B of A's, I became a professional dance instructor. I was teaching a dance called Bachata, which I'm pretty sure most people have heard of it. 
And I started a nightclub. I started a festival, a choreography company uh, when I was 20 uh, with my dance partner at the time. I was actually doing pretty well. Like in my mid-20s, I was making already like about a quarter million dollars a year. And so when it came to buying this first property, I purchased this piece of real estate in L.A., it was a uh, two hundred and forty thousand. So the down payment was just about eight grand. When you do three and a half percent, the seller paid the closing costs because nobody wanted to buy real estate in two thousand and twelve. So all I had to do was pay the eight grand. I think it was eight thousand two hundred for the down payment. I furnished the property. I lived in the master bedroom and I rented the other three bedrooms. And those three bedrooms covered the entire mortgage payment and the utilities. So that was something that I was looking for is I always thought of like leverage, right? Is how do I get this house and without having to pay the mortgage? And so I thought like, okay, well, let me get some roommates. And that was my, my very first introduction into buying real estate and real estate investing in general. Now, I always saved those mortgage payments as if I was making the mortgage payments, but I never had to. So I saved those $1,800 a month. For two years later, I had $43,200 from saving those mortgage payments. And rather than going and getting a Mercedes or a Benz or going on vacation, I thought, why don't I build a studio in the backyard? I went and got permits. I built a studio, new construction with you know permits from the city. I always tell my students, are you doing it with permits from the city or con el permiso de Dios? I did it with both. And now... Once that was built within two and a half years, because I started renting that unit to a long-term tenant for a thousand a month, and I basically recouped my entire investment within two and a half years. So two and a half years later, I got my 43200 back. I'm living mortgage payment free in the main house, and I'm making $1,000 a month. Now, even though it's not a lot of money, for me, it was more of a, it was like a breakthrough because growing up, people always said, Jorjito. They said, Jorge, money doesn't grow on trees. Like I heard that all the time growing up, like money is hard. It's complex. It requires a lot of work. You got to use your hands and you got to trade time for money. And what I proved to myself during that experience is that money does grow on trees if you learn how to plant money seeds. That's powerful. So you were part of, is it the program by like Robert Kiyosaki? Is that? Okay. Yeah. So he's very um, much about this like idea of real estate leverage and using, you know, real estate for building wealth. So what was it about that program that attracted you to want to learn more? So I was looking for real estate investing. I was like, wh wherever I could find it, I just want to find somebody. And I was searching on Facebook. Les Brown was hosting a huge convention in LA. It was free. I went to that. From there, they sold this. They were selling real estate, stocks, Amazon, everything under the sun. Signed up for the real estate workshop. During the three-day workshop, I invested $35,000 into their mentorship. And the biggest breakthrough that I had in the mentorship is learning the difference between good debt and bad debt. Because up until that time, I would send my mortgage payment. And in addition to my mortgage payment, I would always send an extra three to 5000 to the principal. I was on track to paying off the house in the first eight years. And then Mary Jo Wilson, my multimillionaire mentor, said, Jorge, why are you trying to pay off the house? I said, because I want to be financially free. She said, mijo, that's not how you do it. She said, you're going to you're going to be mortgage payment free. But guess what? You're still going to need a job and you're still going to be stuck in the rat race for the rest of your life. And I'm like, OK, well, what should I do? She said, what you should do is she broke it down on paper. She said, you can take out one hundred and sixty thousand dollars of equity doing a refinance cash out. And I want you to go and buy two more houses. 
right? And that's what I did. She said, in 10 years, these property values are going to be double. So you'll have three times the equity, three times the net worth, three times the cash flow, three times the tax benefits, she said, and leverage is the name of the game. Just that lesson right there was worth my $35,000 investment because there's no way I would be where I'm at today if it wasn't for that. Yeah, that was really powerful for me is that shift. Yeah. The first thing that I think about is spending that much money on, you know, knowledge, investing in yourself is so not what people in our community do, right? Like you don't spend money for somebody to teach you shit like this. I think the idea of coaching and personal development is still very much like a, it's just not a thing. And so what do you think it is about you that made you comfortable making those decisions for yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I think all my all my life experiences, but there was one experience. Um, November eleventh of two thousand and twelve, I had a back surgery. I had a herniated disc, and it was really bad. I couldn't I couldn't dance, and I couldn't run, and I couldn't walk. And then I was laid on the floor, and I was hunched over, and I couldn't stand up straight. I had my sciatic nerve all the way down my leg. It was numb, and it was going on for about two three years, where it just got worse over time. And so one day my wife was like, all right, let's go to Tijuana because I didn't have insurance at the time. And the surgeon says, we need to do your surgery tomorrow at 7 a.m. He said, by the way, it's a 50-50 chance you'll walk, you'll ever walk again after this because my surgeries work. So for me, when he told me that, I was like, oh, my God, like I need my body to dance. Like I'm a professional dancer. I perform on stage. I teach choreography. I do quinceaneras, weddings. Like I need my body to make money. So that created a shift. I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I hope I can walk after this. But if I can't, like, what am I going to do? My career's done. And that's what made me think of passive income. I was like, I need to learn how to make money without trading time for money and without using my hands or my body. I need to learn how to use my brain because that's also leverage. And that I think people are motivated by where they want to go or by going away from pain. And, and sometimes the pain is way more motivating than the outcomes that we want. And so that experience of my back surgery and potentially not being able to walk was enough motivation for me to go and find something. And I was, I was willing to pay whatever it took. Now, given I was a really good saver at the time because I had that Dave Ramsey mentality of get out of debt, save your money. And so I had a lot of money under my pillow. And so for me, it wasn't, it was not a challenge to invest that money because I had, you know, way more than that at the time, but I was motivated to learn how to use leverage, learn how to use my mind. And the other motivation that I had too is in 2014, I made a vision board that, and on that vision board, my number one goal was to buy my mom a house. At the time, my mom was living two days with me, then my brother, then my sister, then my auntie, then her friend. And then at one point she lived in a garage. Like she didn't really have a home to call home, but I didn't know how to buy investment properties, just my home. So when I joined Rich Dad, I still remember that day that I paid, made the investment. I called my mom and for some reason I just started crying and like, like an ugly crying. She's like, Nico, get the NS, like, talk to me. Are you okay? And I, I just couldn't talk. And then I finally was able to gather myself. And I said, mom, I figured out how I'm going to buy you your house. And 18 months later, I bought her the house. I just had a lot of motivation. I was, I was trying to get it. I had pain motivation and I had a lot of motivation as to the outcomes and these goals and getting my mom a house. That's beautiful. I love that story. 
Okay. Let's go back to your first house hack, right? Because that's what you were doing. You were literally having other people living in the house with you, paying the mortgage, and you were reaping the benefits of that. I think a lot of folks love the idea, right? Like on paper, but then they think about, I'm grown as hell. Who am I? Why do I want some fucking roommates in my house? So can you talk to us a little bit about the power of delaying that gratification for the long-term vision? Like how do you stay focused when it's not easy in the beginning? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't believe that it is for everybody, right? Like if you're married and you have kids, probably not a good idea to be sharing with other adults who you don't know. And that's just kind of weird. But at the time, again, I was in my 20s. I was single. And everything was about, like you said, right, delaying gratification. And so I was willing to do whatever it took to just keep more money in my pocket. And that's what I believed. I said, I'm going to re I'm going to save all this money and then I'm going to build more units. I'm going to buy more units and do more house hacking. And that was the, that was the game plan. And even in 2017, me and my wife bought out, bought our first house together. And at the time uh, we're engaged, we're getting married in a few months, but we're still not pregnant. We don't have kids. Now we have two daughters, but we still wanted to house hack. But we wanted to do it in a way where we wouldn't share with other people, but how can we still do it? So we bought this property that was four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and I was able to divide the house into two units. So each house had their own entrance, their own bathrooms, their own kitchen. We never saw each other because it's basically two duplexes now. And we put one side on Airbnb. We lived on the other side and we lived mortgage payment free. And in three years, Janice, we saved a hundred thousand dollars worth of mortgage payments 
that we took and just go and buy more real estate. You know, just speaking of delayed gratification, right, up until like even last year in uh, 2022, we were living in uh, Pico Rivera, which I don't know. I don't know if you're from this area, but it, it's like a like a C-class neighborhood. The average income there is like 600,000. At the time, we're already like multimillionaires, but nobody knows that. Like we didn't buy a home over a million until this year. Like I didn't start buying like nice cars until this year but we could have been doing this like two years ago but again we were practicing delayed gratification i think one of the problems with entrepreneurs is that they start to create some profits and results and they start spending it right they renovate their homes they buy the car they want they go on vacation but for me i just created a snowball effect where i wanted it to get bigger and bigger and bigger yeah that's super powerful and i think you have to know your own personality and just like what you're willing to tolerate and what you're not I think everybody's journey is going to look different and that's okay. Like there's no right or wrong way to do it as long as you have that long-term vision, right? Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about Airbnb. How did you first get started with the platform? What is it that attracted you to it versus, you know, just being like a traditional long-term landlord? Yeah. So one of my students in 2016 mentioned this, one of my dance students told me how she was making three and a half times with short-term rentals compared to what she was making with long-term rentals. I thought she was crazy. I'm like, what do you mean three and a half times? What's this Airbnb thing? So I had some leases that were ending in the beginning of 2017, right? From those bedrooms, just from like other units. So I figured, you know what, as these leases are ending at the beginning of 2017, I'm going to renovate these properties and then I'm going to start putting them on Airbnb one by one. So in March of 2017, just about almost six years ago, we launched four Airbnbs that month on properties that we already own. And we went from making on average 1500 per unit to 3500 per unit. So that took us from 6K a month to 14K a month just by switching to short-term rentals. Now, given these are, you know, these were like in, in areas in Southern California where there's a large population, a lot of tourism. So definitely it is about the right properties and the right location as well. But that was mind blowing to me. I was like, wow, like we literally almost tripled two and a half times what we were making. And I just never looked back. So from there, obviously it was impossible to just buy a house every couple of months because I didn't have the capital to do that. That's when I learned about arbitrage. And so that's where you rent properties, get permission and writing from the owners and then launch them on Airbnb. So in 2019, I went all in on that strategy and got like seven properties all within subleasing which then I took that capital and started buying more real estate. Like I said, now we have a portfolio of uh, 18 short-term rentals, nine, eight that we own that are on Airbnb, seven that we sublease and three that we manage. That's incredible. Okay. I have to play devil's advocate because I know there's some people that are very like anti Airbnb for several reasons. One, and probably the most common is that there's a sense that it's making the real estate market more competitive. It's cutting down access to housing. It can, you know, be messing with the equilibrium, if you will, of the housing market in general. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I forgot the numbers. I, I mentioned these numbers on a podcast the other day, but I think there's about 640,000 like short-term rentals. And there's like, I don't know how many like millions and millions and millions of properties that exist. So when you look at how many short-term rentals versus the inventory of real estate, it's like 0.00, like it's not even close, anywhere close to like 1% or even a 10th of a percent. So in the grand scheme of things, Airbnb is 
just like this tiny little thing that exists within the inventory. I do feel that it does make an impact, right? Because when people are utilizing these properties for short-term rentals, it does take away from the inventory, which makes rents go higher, which makes prices go higher. But I think there's like a lot of other reasons as to why we are where we are with prices, interest rates, and inventory. And Airbnb is like a tiny, tiny piece of that. Okay. I think that's fair. Okay. So what are maybe some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about running an Airbnb? Because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, passive income, you don't have to do anything, just sign up and you're going to make a shit ton of money. Is that really the case? Or like, what is actually the real deal? It's definitely a lot of work, right? I think people always underestimate how much work it is to launch an Airbnb. Like it's a lot of work, right? From putting the furniture list together, getting all those Amazon boxes to show up to your house, getting somebody to put them in, to assembling and doing the decor, photography, creating the listing. The great thing is, you know, if you remember back in the day, we had that commercial set it and forget it. I really do believe that if you like Airbnbs are not passive, right? It's a very, there's a lot of turnover, a lot of operations, but just like any business, right? If you, if you're smart and if you know how to build a team and if you know how to build a system, it could be like an 80 to 90% passive business. Like personally, I could delete the phone, the app off my phone, never check it. And it would be fine only because I have a badass manager that handles everything. And I'd rather make 80% of the profit while doing like 5% of the work than make 80% of the profit, but do 80% of the work. You get me? So again, it's not passive, but if you build a team in a system, it could be a mostly passive income business. I would say the biggest misconception is that you have to buy real estate. When you talk about building a short-term rental business, people's objection is always, well, I don't have 20% down to buy a property and pay all the furniture. But again, like I would say 95% of our students all start with the arbitrage model and the subleasing model. And the three most important steps is you have to first verify if, because uh, one of the challenges is regulation. That's probably the biggest challenge. So you have to call the local building department and make sure you can actually get a permit. And I would say only launch where you can get a permit because if you go into a gray area where they're not issuing permits, what if in six months they start issuing permits or they ban it? Now you're stuck. So you gotta make sure you can get a permit. That's number one. Number two is use MashVisor and AirDNA in order to check the comps, to check if you can make double or more, whatever you're gonna pay in rent, and then the third one is to get permission in writing. Hey, Jorge Contreras has permission to use this property as a short-term rental. Awesome. Okay. When it comes to the actual process or the operations of managing an Airbnb, I know, you know, a lot of folks use property managers, they have cleaning companies, et cetera, systems, software. What do you think are like the key strategies there? Like what's the bare minimum you should be planning to budget for or account for in this process? The number one thing is to stay away from property management companies because they're going to charge 20 to 35% of your gross revenue. And in most cases, that's, that is your profit. Like if you're for, for us, we make 30% profit from the gross revenue. If I paid a manager 30%, I would be doing it just for tax benefits and no cash flow. And especially when you're getting started, the most important thing is cash flow because almost everyone's goal is to replace your nine to five. So my suggestion and what I do is we build an in-house team. So like I'll, hire a property manager that is only managing my property, somebody that I have in a relationship with, somebody that I know that I trust that maybe has experience or they have the right attitude. I've always learned hire for attitude and train for skill. I'd rather hire someone that's got a great attitude, great work ethic, and I'll train them how to be a manager. And then they can run my business and it's going to be way less on cost 
than delegating to a large company that has a lot of uh, expenses and overhead. That makes a lot of sense. And for finding like, you know, cleaning companies and things like that, like, is there resources for Airbnb hosts to find? There's a website called uh, Thumbtack. Uh, You can also use Yelp, social media. And the other one that I love using is TaskRabbit, forums where you can find people for cleaning. I would also ask people, word of mouth has been a way that I have found a lot of cleaners as well. Same thing for maintenance people. And you need somebody to clean, somebody to do maintenance. Those people always have to be there physically. The third one is somebody virtual that could be anywhere in the world. They never have to see the properties. And that's your VA, your virtual assistant. I recommend using Upwork.com to hire a virtual assistant, like in Mexico, South America, or uh, Central America, somewhere. That way they're in a similar time zone and they can handle all the communications for you. Love it. Okay. How much does Airbnb charge for fees and how do you account for that in the overall like per night stay that you charge? So they charge the host 3% and they charge the guest an additional 14%. For us as a host, we get to keep 97% of all the revenue, which we don't have to do marketing, no sales. You don't need a website. You don't need a payment processor. Um, Airbnb takes care of all that for 3%. I think that's a great deal. Absolutely. I've seen recently that there's a lot of pushback from folks who feel like Airbnb hosts are asking them to do way too much shit. Like you got to be cleaning the house and changing the sheets. And it's like, if I want to do all this, I might as well just stay in my house, right? Or go to a hotel where I know nobody's going to ask me to like strip the bed. What is your thoughts on like, what's the appropriate thing for Airbnb hosts to ask of their guests versus like, what's just overkill? Yeah, so here's what we do, and I, I think it's it's pretty straightforward, and I, don't, I personally don't think it's an overkill. We stay at Airbnbs all the time, and we you know comply to the same rules. But one is to do their own dishes, right? Especially if people are like cooking and they're having a carne asada, we don't want them to leave the pots and pans with food because what if there's no booking for three days and then it turns into mold and then it smells? So I say, hey, just do your dishes and take out the trash. Like that would be like the the bare minimum. We do tell them if they didn't use any beds, just, you know, leave the beds and the other beds, if they could put put the sheets on the floor and like the towels, it makes it easy for our crew to know which beds were used. And that's about it. But we don't ask them to do any any deep cleaning or things like that. But that's, that's pretty standard in like most Airbnbs is at least do your dishes and take out the trash. Yeah. Okay. And when it comes to making your listing stand out on Airbnb, do you have any tips for how to do that? 100%. So number one is location, 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 right? Getting a property in the better areas where there's a larger population, like near downtown, the beach or the theme parks, even if you have to pay an extra couple hundred, rather than going to a secondary or a tertiary market, like in the outskirts, I would rather pay more and be in a primary market because those properties will always perform better, especially during a recession. People are going to stay there more than in the outskirts. So number one is be in in an area where there's a large population or like the downtown, the theme parks, the beach. Number two is we are playing uh, a game of whoever has the most and best amenities win. So if you have the ability to get a property that has a pool, a jacuzzi, and a game room, or just one of those, that's going to perform way better than a property that doesn't. And the reason is people stay at Airbnbs for two reasons. One, they're staying at your property because they're going to this conference and you're five minutes away. Or two, they want to book your property because they can have a staycation experience, which means they can have a good time in the home 
without needing to leave the home. So if you can combine both, have the amenities and be in close proximity, then you'll be like in the top 3% of uh, inventory. That's awesome advice. Okay. So I know it's not all like rainbows and unicorns. So what's the Airbnb horror story that you can share with us of something that just went incredibly wrong? Personally, I don't have any crazy ones, but just uh, this weekend, uh, one of my students texted me and they had a break-in in their property and the property was like vandalized and it was like really bad. They had to get the cops out there. And again, I have, I didn't go into detail. They just sent me a text. So I don't know why it happened. So I can't really say, oh, here's how to prevent it. But that that's the maybe the first time I hear of, of like vandalism at a property. But again, this is something that I guess if somebody knows that these properties are vacant, like somebody could try to go in there. But again, from hundreds and hundreds of Airbnb launches, the first time that I heard and that's pretty bad, right? Because now it kind of it kind of ruined their New Year's experience. They were feeling sad, and now they got to deal with this, and they didn't feel like celebrating. It just like killed their energy. That's that's like a recent, um, you know, situation. Everything else is stuff that we've been able to handle. Like maybe about six months ago, I had a family at one of my properties that stuffed way too much toilet paper down the toilet, and it overflowed, and like everything just came out, and it went into like the different living areas of property. I never saw it, but obviously it was it was bad. My cleaners took like six hours to clean it, had to get a plumber out there. So unfortunate situations like that happen from time to time, but there are things that we can fix. So not that big of a deal. Absolutely. And I think that just emphasizes the fact that when you're running any type of business, you have to plan for emergencies. You got to have extra cash, you know, sitting on hand and you just got to have a plan, an action plan, right? When it comes to being selective about Airbnb guests, like, is there ways to make better decisions so that you're, you can at least try to ensure that the people who are staying in your properties are not going to like go nuts and do something stupid? Yeah. The great thing is we're in the social proof economy, right? So if five people already said that, hey, Janice is a great guest, then I'm going to say, hey, she must be a great guest. Same thing. If uh, so-and-so has, you know, three negative reviews then I'm going to you know, have to decide if I want to let that property stay at my property. So we're able to see those reviews before we let somebody book our property. Something to look out for if you're hosting larger properties where you're hosting eight people and more, especially if they're like single family homes, is if you notice that somebody from the same city is trying to book your property and it's a brand new profile and they have no reviews, they probably are trying to throw a party, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where you want to put your detective hat on and start asking questions like, hey, what brings you into town? And like, if somebody says, oh, we're going to, um, you know, the Temerarios concert, right? I'm like, okay, cool. Well, let me check if they're actually in town. Like, I'm going to do some research and make sure there's actually a Temerarios concert, you know, like, I want to know. And if I just get like this weird feeling that they're maybe lying and they want to throw a party, like I'll say, hey, just to let you know, the neighbor next door is, uh, you know, LAPD, and this guy doesn't take shit from nobody. Like, he will shut you down. He will give you a ticket. Like, I'll scare them. That's when you have to put your investigator hat. But other than that, like I said, you can go based on reviews. And typically, for the most part, you know, you'll have a bad apple every once in a while. But for the most part, we're able to attract, you know, good guests. Yeah. Are you actually the one who's like verifying these people or do you, or you have your VA doing that? Well, I used to do it, but now with so many Airbnbs between my manager and my VA, they, they, they do all that verification and every once in a while I'll step in, but it's mostly hands off. Okay. Speaking of reviews, how do you deal with the negative review from a guest? 
Yeah, the secret is how to prevent it, which I'll talk about in a second. Because once you leave a review, there's nothing that you can do about it in order to remove it. Like they could lie. Like your property could be the most amazing property and they can say, you know what? It was dirty. I didn't like the area and I'll never book again. And Airbnb allows them to say whatever they want as long as they're not, you know, cussing or making any threats. They can say whatever they want. The best way to prevent, a lot of times, let's say a guest checks out and they leave the property extra dirty. They didn't do their dishes. They didn't throw out the trash and they, it was excessively dirty. And if you submit a claim, those people might be like, well, isn't that what the cleaning you know, fee is for? And they might get upset that now you're trying to charge them a second cleaning fee. So now they're going to leave you a bad review. So the, the secret sauce here is reach out to the guest ask them to leave you a review and once they submit the review then you sneak in the claim so that way you get an honest review and you collect your monies because again if you if you just submit the claim you're going to get a bad review so that's that that's like some of what a little bit of what we do to make sure we get the best of both worlds okay i love it okay so for folks that want to get started in this process what's your best advice like what's one or two things that they should start thinking about doing now do they need to like create an llc like what's the process yeah ideally they should create an llc for two reasons one it gives you credibility when you're speaking to landlords or property management companies because instead of saying hey uh this is you know jorge it's like oh this is my name the name of my company so it sounds more professional but two, once you set up your LLC, set up a business checking account and apply for a business credit card, now you're building business credit and you can use that business credit card to pay for like furniture, even to pay rent and deposits. And then you could use the profits from the Airbnb to then you know pay back the credit card. But yeah, the LLC is definitely a must. On top of that, just for the asset protection, right? Especially if you own other businesses or you have money in your bank account. If there was ever a lawsuit, you know, knock on wood, ideally that LLC will give you a layer of protection. Do you have an LLC for each property or you just have them all in one? So I'm in the beautiful state of California where LLCs are super expensive uh, to maintain 800 uh, franchise fee every year. So I, I, for like my first four properties that I owned, we did have uh, me and my wife, like one LLC per property. Now we're starting to put like two to three properties per LLC for the ones we own on the subleases. We put them all in one LLC. There's like so much to learn here. And I know folks are going to want to find out so much more about you and how they can work with you to learn about this whole process. So tell us about how you work with your students to empower them to become Airbnb hosts. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, we have group coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching. We give them access to like softwares, online course. We have like six coaching calls a week, subleasing, purchasing, business credit, the tax side, the legal side. So we teach them everything about building a team and a system. And I'm always hosting uh, workshops like every month. I do a webinar or like a five-day challenge. So yeah, if they head on, head on over to my Instagram, uh, they'll be able to see the link in my bio or my stories. And there's always something and, and an opportunity to learn. Amazing. Jorge, your story is so inspiring and I can't wait for folks to hear it and find out more about you. And I'm just like so excited to see especially Latino men like representing wealth building in our community. Please keep going because I am rooting for your success. Let's do it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.